So I want to begin today my sermon with a question for you. And that question is, have you ever had computer issues before? Anybody in the room? You know? Okay, I, I got the same reaction in the first service. Um, you know, we've, we've all had moments where our computers stop working. And so we call IT or tech support or that friend who is particularly computer savvy. And if you've had that experience, then you know what happens is that person that you call begins asking you a series of what you feel like are seemingly very dumb questions. Like, is your computer turned on? Or is your computer plugged into the wall? Um, or have you tried turning it on or off? Have you, have you downloaded any software recently from the internet? Have you clicked an email from your cousin from Nigeria who told you you're inheriting a million dollars? Have you done anything that might have changed the life of your computer? And I had one of those moments a few years ago. And so I called my friend who was the IT guy uh, with, with the church I was working with. And I said, hey, I'm having a problem with this piece of software. And so he starts into the spiel. Is your computer turned on? Is it plugged in? I said, I've done all those. That's why I'm calling you. And so while he was doing a remote diagnostic on my computer, I asked him just out of curiosity, Daryl, has anyone ever done one of those things that you just asked me about? And he said, well... If I tell you and you tell anybody, I'm going to have to kill you. And um, so I'm going to tell you today. Um, But I'm not going to name any names. He said, there's a guy on our team. He said, he called me. He's having all these problems. And I went to his office. And he's a really sharp guy. He's not like somebody who had never used a computer before. And he went in this guy's office. And he hadn't plugged his computer into the wall. And so, of course, it wouldn't work. And so I was, you know, feeling very proud of myself that day that I at least could plug my computer into the wall. And... And I was thinking about that, and then it reminded me, I had a moment, you know how God humbles you sometimes, you think you're a little bit more than you are, and then God kind of brings you back down. I was reminded of what had just happened a few weeks before. I used to wear contacts, and so I had to go to the eye doctor on a regular basis to get my eyes checked, and I went in one time because I literally couldn't see anymore. Like, I was having a hard time driving, I was having a hard time reading, using the computer, and um, I went in, and I told my friend, who I noticed was working at the front desk, She's like, hey, what are you here for? I said, I can't see. My contacts are all screwed up. And she's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll get you helped out. And so I went in there, and the doctor comes in, and he puts the little thing on, you know, better or worse, better or worse. So we're going through the whole thing, and then he kind of pushes back and starts laughing. Like, what are you laughing at? He's like, I know what your problem is. What's my problem? He goes, both of your contacts are in the same eye. And uh, I'm like, well, no wonder I can't see. And so I did like the walk of shame because my friend is waiting for me, you know, and she's like, what's wrong? I said, I'm an idiot. And, uh, and so I was thinking about those moments this week as I thought about our text, because I think a lot of us have these same kind of challenges, not with computers and contacts, but with our relationship with God. And the challenge is, I think for a lot of us, we try to follow the example of Jesus in our own power. There's a lot of us that for years have opened this book and we've read the things that Jesus said. We've, we've explored the things that, that detail what it means to follow Jesus. And yet we've then turned and tried to do those things in our own power. And if you've done that, then you know the fruit of that. And that's frustration, disappointment, discouragement, maybe even a sense of shame. Like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? And what we're going to look at today in this series, Jesus Plus Nothing and the passage we have, is why that isn't a new phenomenon. That isn't a new experience. That isn't just a problem for 21st century American followers of Jesus. This is a challenge that goes all the way back to the beginning 
as people have struggled to follow Jesus. And so this morning, if you walked in and got a bulletin, I'd encourage you to pull out your handout. And on there is a section that says, Big Idea. And I want you to fill in these blanks with this sentence. The big idea this morning is this. To walk with the Holy Spirit, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. To walk with the Holy Spirit, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've never heard that phrase, Holy Spirit, before, and you say, Scott, who is the Holy Spirit? Then I'd like to have Jesus enlighten you. In the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus has his last meal with his friends, his disciples, and he talks to them about the Holy Spirit. In John 14, beginning in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In just a few short hours, Jesus was going to be arrested, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And 45 days later, he was going to return to heaven. And he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you another helper who will be with you forever, the spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. As people who believe in the Bible and follow Jesus, we believe that when you become a follower of Jesus and you're forgiven of your sins, that God's Spirit comes and dwells within you. Not Casper the Friendly Ghost, not some weird phenomenon that certain churches experience, but a person who is the Spirit of the living God that we just sang about. And that Spirit gives us the power to live out everything we read in this book. And so this morning, Paul is going to enlighten us with some words of wisdom about how we can walk with the Spirit in the power of the Spirit. So if you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 16 to 26 this morning. We've been in this series all summer long talking about the essential nature of our faith being Jesus plus nothing. And and in this series, we've said that a lot of times we add things to the work of Jesus, and many times we try to follow Jesus, but with things beyond Jesus, and that's what we're going to see this morning in this passage. We're going to see four words of wisdom from the Apostle Paul, and the first one comes beginning in verse 16. Here's what Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit." And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then Paul says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The first lesson from Paul, if you're writing notes is that we are to acknowledge the war inside of us. For each of us, we need to acknowledge the war inside of us. Now, you may not have known this, you may not have thought about this, you may not have been aware of this when you came into church today, but according to the Apostle Paul, there is a war inside of you. There's a war going on right now, inside of you. And that war is between the desires of your flesh and the desires of the Spirit. 
Now, Paul uses this phrase, the flesh, all throughout this passage. He's not talking about your skin. He's not talking about your muscles. He's not even necessarily talking about your physical body. He's talking about the nature, the human nature you were born with. And that nature is at war against this spirit that now resides in you if you're a follower of Jesus. And he says that those two things are battling one another every single day as you desire to do good but have other desires within you. Many of you know this war very well. You start on Monday and you say, I'm going to remember to be aware of God all day today because I had a great day at church on Sunday. And by the end of the day, you even forgot that you were here on Sunday. (laughs) Or you start the day and you go, I'm going to actually be a patient parent. And by the time it's an hour later, you're screaming at their kids to finish their Cheerios as if it's like a nuclear war about to erupt or... Or you say, I'm going to go on a date with my spouse and not look at my phone. And they go to the bathroom and they come back and they find you shamelessly on Facebook. You know, you, you decide that you are going to do something, but there are other desires at work within you. Maybe you know that you have a problem in your life. Maybe it's even bordering on an addiction. And you want with all your might to be free from that and live a different way. But there are other desires inside of you. Paul says there's a war inside of you. And Paul says this because he knows it from experience. In Romans chapter 7, he wrote this. Paul said, I do not understand my own actions. Some of us are like, amen. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I do, I hate. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in my human nature. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He says, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, he says, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. And some of us are just nodding our head as we read along with Paul. That we know that war. We know that struggle. We know that battle. Some of us even on a daily or hourly basis. That the Spirit of God lives in us, but there are other desires that war within that. And many of us, when faced with this reality, go, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to follow the rules better. I'm just going to read everything I can in the Bible. I'm going to memorize it all. And I'm going to do all of those things. And one of two things happen. You either are proud and conceited enough to think it will actually work. Or you're experienced enough to know the disappointment of seeing that all come crashing down. And what Paul is telling us is that the law cannot produce in us what the Spirit can. The law cannot produce in us what the Spirit can. Paul is someone who had memorized all 650 plus laws in the Old Testament. Paul knew the law better than nearly every person who called themselves a Jew. 
But he still said, no matter how well I knew the law, the law could not produce in me victory over those desires. And this is why, if you've ever been a part of a church that was committed to the law, that taught the law, that focused on always reminding you of all the things that you did wrong and tried to help you to be a better rule follower, you know the fruitlessness of that. We call this legalism in the church. It's this belief that we can do all of these things in our own power, and it's in doing all the laws that we gain God's favor. And that's not true. That's fruitless. See, you can try to follow all the laws and even follow more than you used to and go further and further away from Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to make us good rule followers. He came to make us new creations. And he came to make possible in us what we couldn't do in our own power and strength. And Paul wants us to be aware of what the outcomes of this flesh is. And he continues in verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The second word of wisdom from Paul he asks for us today is to beware the works of the flesh. Beware the works of the flesh. Paul lays out this laundry list and the outcome of all of these things, whether it's sexual immorality or sensuality or envy, all of them all end up in the same place. Death. The outcome of us trying our best to win this war in our own strength is death. We, we can't achieve victory on our own. And Paul says the result of the flesh is all of these things. These are the work of the flesh. This is what working out the flesh looks like. And he divides this list into four categories. He begins with what I call sexual works. The first three things on the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The word that's the Greek word that we translate sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's a word that sounds familiar to you because we take the word porn from that word. And the word pornea has an interesting definition. How many of you at home have a junk drawer? Raise your hand. I've been fighting for a junk drawer my entire marriage. My wife wants to throw everything in it away. Like, it's important. We need that duct tape, the batteries, the floss, um, the tickets to a football game from 10 years ago. We need everything in there, you know? Most people I know at some point have a junk drawer. And the word pornea that you see as sexual immorality is in Greek a junk drawer term. Its range of meaning includes anything and everything sexually that happens outside of God's design. That's a long list because human beings are very creative. And so Paul is saying sexual immorality 
pornea is an outcome, a working of the flesh. So is impurity, so is sensuality. Your, your Bible may say the word debauchery. Shameless, brazen, non-embarrassing sin. People who just sin and don't care. He says religious works. There's idolatry and there's sorcery. There's bowing down to idols. So this, was, this was happening in Galatia. People, people were bowing down to created statues. Sorcery. The Greek word for sorcery is the word pharmaka. It's the word we get our word pharmacy from. And in this day, it was common for people, as they were worshiping false gods, to take drugs, to have hallucinations, to enter trances, to have spiritual experiences. So he has sexual works and religious works. And then, interestingly, what Paul does is he lists what I call relational works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. See, he starts out with these very public sins. Idolatry, sexuality sins. And then he goes to what I call more seemingly invisible sins. See, here's the thing. In our day, the church is very good at talking about and addressing the first two. But we don't do a very good job with this one because this one is more invisible and this one is very common in the church. We're very good at judging other people for their very public visible sins while not dealing with our own invisible sins even while these tear our churches and families apart. And so Paul says, this list covers everything. And if you seek to follow me in your own power and in your own strength, you're going to have to deal with this war inside of you that is going to produce these works which are clear and evident. And don't worry whether they're visible or not. They will play themselves out. And I, I'm so grateful that Paul gives us this list so that we can know that these aren't just things that other people struggle with. Because we're really good at judging other people's sins when they struggle with sins that we don't. And so Paul gives us this clear picture that includes everyone's struggle. And finally, he has what he, what he calls works of alcohol. He talks about drunkenness and orgies. And then he says at the very end, in my translation, he says, and things like these and the like. Just so if you're wondering, hey, my sin isn't on the list, he's got you covered too. Because <laughs> we all love looking for the exceptions to cover ourselves. And so he says, hey, just to be sure, you're on the list too. And what's so interesting, I think, is that as I was reading through this list, I was reminded of a quote from a man who I'm not sure where he stands in his faith and relationship with God, but I think describes the experience of these works of the flesh. American writer Henry David Thoreau. He says, The mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. You and I know so many people, and you and I are so many people, who these things are signs of the desperation with which we live. We're searching for meaning, value, purpose, love, intimacy. But we're searching in the wrong places. We're searching for things that God put in us to desire and long for and experience. But this list gives us the examples of what happens when we look for those in the power of our own flesh. 
instead of looking to our creator for those things. And some of you may say, well, Scott, this, this passage ends with a very strange warning. It does. Paul says, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things on this list will not inherit the kingdom of God. So some of you go, well, what about me? Because this describes me. Does this mean I'm out of luck? Does this mean I have no hope of living with God for eternity? Does this mean because I've, I've made mistakes that I'm just, you know, out of chances? No, what Paul is saying here is that if you are a person who has experienced what Jesus has done, and yet you continue to live like this, that is incongruent. Let me quote what Paul said earlier in the book in Galatians 2. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, this Holy Spirit. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me summarize that for you. What what Paul is saying is that activity follows identity. Activity follows identity. Paul is saying, if if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, not in your own flesh, not in your own efforts, not in the family you grew up in, not in the country you were born in, not an experience you had when you were a kid, but if you put your faith in Jesus, you have become a new person, you have a new identity, and activity, your life, will follow that identity. You'll begin to live in light of that. And if you continue to live this way according to the flesh, it's a sign that you don't have that new identity. Because if you had that new identity, it would lead to a new way of living. And so for many of us, if we look at our lives, and this isn't the occasional event, that list, the work of the flesh, is the pattern of our life for years and years. Paul says, I want to warn you and sober you up that you may not know Jesus. You may know religion. You may know church. You may know American, cultural, I believe in God and America, so I'm going to go to heaven when I die because I'm a good person, but you don't know Jesus. He says, because the fruit of knowing Jesus is starkly different than the works of the flesh. And he's going to tell us what that fruit is here, beginning in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit contrasted against the work of the flesh, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, as we've been talking about, were crucified or have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, we are to also keep in step with the Spirit. Number three, Paul's third lesson, is to trust the Spirit to produce good fruit in you. Trust the Spirit to produce good fruit in you. Now, many of you have heard this passage before, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Some of you have memorized this list. You can know it from memory, love and joy and peace and patience and everything else. But I believe this passage is one of the most misunderstood passages in the whole Bible. And here's why. When most of us read this passage, we think of a picture like this. 
Now, you have to know, when you go to a foreign country and come back, the first thing that stands out to you is the produce section in the grocery store. Because we are ridiculously blessed. But you look at a picture of this, and you see this is amazing fruit. You know, you have a pomegranate and an orange. You have grapes. You have an apple. You have a kiwi. You have melons. You have pineapple. You have all this fruit. And when we read this text, Galatians 5, we think, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And what we start doing is we start grading ourselves. Like love, I don't know, I'm a three. Joy, I'm a five. Patience, I'm like a 0.25, you know. Kindness, I'm a three. Self-control, like what's the lowest number I can have and still be on the scale, you know. We grade ourselves. But that's not how Paul wrote this list. Look back in the list. Does it say the fruits of the Spirit are? No. It says the fruit of the Spirit is. It's not plural. It's singular. So it's not this. It's this. It's one fruit. Not nine. One. And the fruit is not produced because we try harder. The fruit is produced because the Spirit is at work in us. And so Paul is saying, these are the works of the flesh if you live according to the flesh. But if you live in step with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not just bring a little bit of love and a little bit of joy and a little bit of patience, but you're out of luck when it comes to self-control. He says, the Holy Spirit will bring all of this fruit in you according to his own power and strength. And that's why for many of us, the great scandal is that we've been trying to follow Jesus in our own power. We've been living Jesus plus the flesh. We met Jesus in the beginning. We knew we needed his forgiveness because we couldn't forgive ourselves. But somewhere along the way, we shifted from following him in his power to following him in our power. Saved in the power of Jesus, working to become like Jesus in the power of our flesh. And that's why this list seems so different from our character. It's not because we didn't experience Jesus' forgiveness. It's because we're trying to follow him in disconnection from his power. These are the words of Jesus in John 15. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Again, with this whole fruit analogy. Whoever abides in me, whoever remains connected to me, whoever keeps in my power, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It says in verse 16, But you did not choose me, and, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear what? Fruit. And that your fruit should abide. Your Bible might say, so that your fruit should last. Jesus decided when you experienced his forgiveness that he was going to bear fruit in you and that fruit would last. Not because you have some natural self-control or secret power of your own, but because he knew what he was capable of in you. And so you need to trust the spirit to produce good fruit in you. Let me tell you what the opposite of that is. The opposite of that is burnout. And I have faced this twice in my ministry as a pastor. 
I've tried to pastor and lead God's people in my own power. And this was the outcome. Not only can you not follow Jesus in your own power and experience spiritual fruit, you can't influence other people in your own power and experience spiritual fruit. Because eventually, what God gave us as gifts in the scriptures will feel like a 2,000 pound weight on your back driving you into the ground. Because you're trying to do this without the power of the one who gave you this direction. And so you have to do this in the Spirit's power. See, Scott, what does that look like? It looks like beginning every day and before you reach for your phone and before you get updated on the latest crisis you're going to have to solve, before you have your coffee or before you read the paper or before you feed another person, you remind yourself that God's Spirit has come to dwell within you. And more important than connecting this to a power source, you need to connect you to a power source. And that is the power through which you can do everything God has called you to. And if you do that day after day after day after day, then a few weeks or months down the road, you're going to wake up and people are going to comment on the joy you have and the peace you have. Not because you're a better person than them, but because you've been trusting in the Spirit to produce in you what you couldn't do on your own. And in that moment, it won't make you proud. It'll humble you because you know what you're capable of on your own. And you know what God's capable of in you. And you know where the fruit came from. It came from Him. Paul gives us one last lesson here in verse 26. He says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Paul's fourth lesson is as we walk with the Spirit, we need to walk in humility with the Spirit. Walk in humility with the Spirit. When I first read this, I said, this is so odd for what Paul to say. He's been describing all of this and then this little thing about being conceited. And then I remembered, oh, oh, Paul knows people like me. Have you ever had a moment where you started to see something differently? Maybe you got clarity in an area where you were confused. You were wrong on something and now you're right. And you become insufferable to live with. Some of you have watched just enough Netflix documentaries to be experts on things. And you're insufferable to deal with. Because you figured out about this one little thing that everyone needs to know about that's wrong in the world. And you're on a mission to correct everyone. And Paul says that might happen here. Some of you might have been living, following Jesus in your own power. And God opens your eyes. And the temptation is in discovering that, that you might become conceited and look down on one another. Paul is reminding us that human beings are radically able and capable of incredible self-deception. And even at the moment of a breakthrough, we're tempted to pride. We're tempted to conceit. And Paul says, beware the danger of conceit. Don't envy one another, don't become conceited, and don't provoke one another. See, Paul knew this church in Galatia 
And I think he knew what was at the heart of the American church today because the greatest threat to the American church today does not lie outside of the church. It lies within the church. We are our own worst enemy. More churches close their doors every year because they were torn apart by envy and conceit or they only cared about their own needs. Then churches were torn apart by some outside force. Many of you are here at Cornerstone because you were part of a church like that and you couldn't handle it anymore. Or the church broke apart and no longer exists because of something like this. And so Paul says, walk in humility, even as you gain clarity on what you used to see with cloudiness. Walk in humility. I have some next steps for you before we come to our final week next week based upon this text that I want you to write down They're on the back of your handout. And I encourage you to spend some time this week reflecting on these. The first one is this. I want you to evaluate how the battle is going on inside of you. This battle between the spirit and the flesh, how is it going? Which side is winning? Is it possible to borrow a, a cliche that you've been bringing a knife to a gunfight? That you've been trying to fight against your flesh in the power of your flesh and not against the power of the spirit? Number two, I want you to examine the outcomes of your life. Look through these lists. The work of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, and ask yourself, which one is more descriptive of my pattern of living? If you don't know, ask the person you live with. I'm sure they've got some perspective to share with you. If you have the courage to ask that person. Three, I want to challenge you to renew your commitment to walk in the Spirit. Not to be more regular at church. Not to show up at your small group more. Not to just read your Bible more, but to walk in the Spirit. To live your life not in your own power and strength, but in the power of the Spirit. And that's going to take constant attention. Constant reminding. More often than your phone dings with notifications, you're going to have to remind yourself, I am doing this in the power of the Spirit. God lives in me, and He's given me the ability to do everything He's called me to do. And then number four, I want you to pursue unity with others. Pursue unity with others. Paul ended his passage here with this call to unity and this call to fight against disunity. And I want to just end by reading the last prayer of Jesus. If you've ever read it, it's in John 17. Jesus prayed for you. I'm not sure if you knew that. Before he went to the cross, he prayed for you and me. And it's interesting what he prayed for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples who are with him. He says, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on to say that they may become perfectly one, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's why those invisible sins are so important. Because the world can't believe that Jesus loves them if in here 
we constantly tear each other apart. If the body of Christ doesn't reflect love, but reflects hate and envy and discord, and we go out to the world and say, hey, Jesus loves you, but that guy in my church, I hate his guts. That's not believable at all. And so the final prayer of Jesus is that we would reject conceit, that we wouldn't provoke one another, we wouldn't envy one another, but by the power of the Spirit, we would be one. And what does he say? If we did that, the world would know that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loved them if we came together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this word and this reminder from Paul that we were never designed to do this in our own power. So many of us, if we're honest, have gotten disenfranchised with following Jesus because we're frustrated and disappointed that we can't do it, that we stumbled and fall. And God, we pray that today has been a sobering, awakening moment as you've reminded us through Galatians that we can't do this in our own power. We were never intended to. That it's not just Jesus plus nothing in the beginning to save us and forgive us, but it's Jesus plus nothing as we seek to follow you. That it's the Spirit plus nothing as you seek to produce fruit in us. And so we pray that in the places where we've seen without clarity that you'd open our eyes. In the places that we've been naive to the war going on inside of us, we pray that you'd wake us up and shake us up. And in the places where we've been discouraged, beaten down, where we've been burned out and we're thinking about throwing in the towel, we pray that you would meet us here and remind us that in us, you are capable of things that go beyond even our wildest imagination. And in us, you want to bear fruit. Fruit lasts. Love and joy, patience and kindness, gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Things that even in our own power and strength are pipe dreams. But in you, there are so we pray that we would not only welcome the Holy Spirit here on Sundays, but we would invite and remain aware of your Holy Spirit on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, that you would give us the power to walk with you and complete all the purposes you have for us. Fill us up, Father, to the point of overflowing, that we may do the things you have sent us here to do, Thank you that you haven't left us alone. Far from it. You're right there with us if we will just open our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.